Hi, welcome to episode number 89. Just a quick thing before we get stuck into this episode is if you roll on over to the Occupied Podcast Instagram page uh, or our Facebook page, you'll find a little video explaining that we are currently doing a giveaway. We are giving away a copy of Assessments in Occupational Therapy Mental Health Version 3, the textbook for nothing. Well, not necessarily for nothing. There is a little something that you have to do for it. Um, But jump along there, check out that, and enter that if that's something that you think might be of interest to you. Um, This episode, uh, my long-term friend, uh, an amazing, amazing occupational therapist, Jess Leggett, Let's kick out the jams. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. Yeah, very much so. I'm kind of of the same theory. OT definitely found me. Um, When I was in my younger teenage years, I always wanted to get into like a helping profession of some sort. Um, I went through a phase of wanting to be a nurse at some stage and then I really got keen that I wanted to be a doctor Um, and then I found out how long it would take to become a doctor and the study that was involved in that. So I decided, no, that wasn't for me. Um, But, yeah, there was definitely a period of time for a good probably one or two years where I was serious about becoming a doctor. Um, And then it got to my later teenage years and my senior high school study that um, I was talking to my sister's friend um, who was studying occupational therapy at the time. And she was telling me about this wonderful profession and what it included and it was very holistic and it was very um, based on, um, you know, the person and very client-oriented. It was all about helping people get back to what they loved and, um, you know, doing things that were meaningful. And when she started telling me about this profession and at the time she was interested in paediatrics OT, so she was studying a lot of subjects based on that. And I was very much interested in working with kids as well. So I thought, perfect, this is a beautiful matchup. Um, I'll be able to help people, but it'll also be very holistic and I'll be able to work with kids if I want to. So from there, I basically thought, yep, that's the profession for me. And it wasn't, I think I was in like year 12 at the time. So luckily I'd taken the right subjects, more science-based kind of subjects. And yeah, knowing that I wanted to get into sort of some sort of tertiary science-y helping profession. Um, And then, yeah, when I found out about that in year 12, I was like, yep, that sounds like the perfect, perfect profession for me. So I went in to, um, I actually didn't get straight into OT. I didn't get a high enough OP, (laughs) Um, but I ended up going into human movement studies and I did a year in human movements. And then I was able to go from human movement studies um, into occupational therapy from there. And I was very focused on becoming a pediatric OT. 
I was just going to, I was like, there was just no that doubt in my mind. That was it. I was going to be a pediatric OT. There was just no question marks around that. I took all my subjects in peds. I, um, I did my pracs at the, the children's clinic at, at UQ. I did a wonderful prac at the uh, Royal Children's Hospital here in Brizzy and absolutely fell in love with the profession even more and also was like, yeah, kids, kids, kids all the way. And then when I graduated, I also did my honours um, project with um, grade grade one kids at the Murray School here in Brisbane working with um, young Indigenous and um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders um, at the Murray School. And basically after I graduated, the first job that I went for was a new grad position at the Royal Children's Hospital. Okay. I didn't get it. Oh. <laughs> I was absolutely devastated. Like it was like heartbreaking. I think I was bawling my eyes out after I didn't get this job. Um, and I just thought, oh, my God, all my, I felt like all my dreams were like ripped away from me in that one instance. <laughs> Um, but they explained to me at the other end that they had other new grads applying for it and they had the, the uh, OT that got it had been out for a year. So mm-hmm. she'd been practising for 12 months in paediatrics. So that kind of made me feel a little bit better, but um, I was still absolutely heartbroken and devastated and I thought, gosh, what am I going to do? Like Royal Children's <laughs> Hospital, that was kind of like this dream, dream aspiration of mine. Um, so the very next job I went for was in, um, acute adults working at a hospital. And, um, this was at Greenslope private hospital here in Brizzy. And I went for that job and I got the job. So it would, they, and I got the job based on some of my clinical subjects that I'd done at uni. I'd done some, um, study in, uh, chronic pain management. So that was something that they looked at as, you know, favorable. um, favorable and I'd also done some splinting so some hand therapy work at um, the Royal here in Brisbane as well so they looked at that and I said right you'll fit this acute role that we have available and I got thrown into that and I became the um, yeah splinting OT hand therapy OT at the hospital and I also worked in the, the area of chronic pain so and I never got to work with kids you know <laughs> ever well more recently I mean I've and we'll probably talk about more more about this as we go along but yeah I mean, I've had a very eclectic occupational therapy career. It's been, I have dabbled in every single little area that you could probably think of in occupational therapy um, and have sort of jumped around in the um, hospital systems, in different wards, different departments, different areas. Um, But more recently, funnily enough, full circle, I'm working with young people. So not with kiddies. Finally. Finally, finally, <laughs> I'm working with youth and it's within youth mental health. So, and absolutely adoring it, loving it, and um, have certainly found um, my niche that I can bring everything together, including that that passion of working with young people. So, that's awesome because I know yeah. when we met, you were working at, at Green Slopes. Do you remember? Yes. Do you remember the story of how we met or how you connected with me? Gosh, was that with. Ufras days was that week? That was, um, I think uh, it was after. It was yeah. after. I'm, I, I remember when I came across you, our 
paths crossed many years ago back in kind of UFRAS days, which is Occupational Opportunities for Refugees and Asylum Seekers, Mm -hmm. which is a volunteer-based group of OTs that did some wonderful things back in the day. But Clarissa, um, I remember that you had either interviewed her or you had, she had interviewed you about something and I saw a little article and I saw your name at the bottom of the article and I really liked what you'd had to say about occupation and using occupation as, you know, as the means to your therapy, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember reading the article and seeing your name and I think somehow I jumped on and we connected in that way, but that was way like back in the day. Quiz. Like, do you remember? Is, yeah, but tell me more about the Because so I, re- I remember this clearly because it still cracks me up. Because I've never yes. had anyone do it since. Okay. I got this random email from you. Yes. Like we'd never met. We'd never spoken. We'd never anything. And no. I think the opening line was, we need to connect or something to that effect. Right. Yes. And the story like you me. told me, and you'd written this, it was a massive email. And it was like, at the very end, it, it was It doesn't like, sound like me at all. I hope this doesn't scare you <laughs> off kind of thing. But the basic right. premise was that I'd popped up three times. <sighs> God, yes, and yes. You, you apparently I do had remember this, that you apparently now. had this rule, like if something happens three times, then you have to like lean into it. So I got this totally. email saying from this completely random lady I'd never met before saying that I'd popped yeah. into her life three times recently. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, alrighty, this is That strange. is so true. <laughs> that is totally my go-to in life. If something pops up for me, like it might be like a random um something on social media it might be a book it might be someone kind of mentioning it offhandedly whatever it might be a person (laughs) exactly so for you yeah so I think maybe that first time was that little crossing of paths of me reading that article with your name at the bottom and going "Mm, I like what this guy's got to say about occupational therapy and I love his passion and enthusiasm and that you know there's this real um basis of using occupation as therapy and then there must have been two other instances. I don't remember what those two other instances were. Yeah, but somehow remember. you crossed I think my... You did explain. I could probably, I've, probably, I've probably still got the email. I'm pretty, probably I, I could probably find it somewhere in the vaults from, God, that would have been eight years ago. That was a long time ago. Yes, yes. I think I'd only but... just moved back here. I love that you remember that because it jolts me back into that memory as well. Yeah. And it's so true. Three times and you've got to lean into it. You've got to jump on it and go, what's what's coming up for me that needs to be kind of explored or that I need to connect or. Yeah. And then weirdly, I think it was only a few weeks after that I was going down to Brisbane for something. Would Wasn't there a conference? a conference? Yeah. You were going to a conference. I was going and to a conference. I you were driving past one. the and, hospital. Yep. Yeah. I was, I think it might have been on the Gold Coast, actually. I think that might have been the Mental Health Forum on the Gold Coast. Yes. Which that would have been about familiar. 2012, 2000, that no, must have been 2013 ish. 2013 ish. And then yep. we caught up in the city for lunch, I think, and had a chat yep. and, yeah, been yes. connected ever since. Yes, yes, we have. Oh, and we went to uh, the Kawa Model Workshop, remember, too. Yep, that was that's, yep. a year after or so. Yep, yep. So, and so we were like, yeah, let's It would have been the last time I think Michael Awama made it out to Australia. We both went and a couple other people I knew and went out to dinner after that with a big group of OTs, which was always fun. It's always a fun thing to do. 
when you sort yeah. of, especially after a day like that where you've just had like a whole day just sort of immersed, immersed in OT related stuff or Ocular what doesn't even have to be OT like anything and then you sort of continue it on in the I guess a more informal way which is what um, yes that's what this podcast has been described as I remember I don't know if you do you know Jodie Booth I know Judy Booth. Yes. We actually studied together at university. I've I never got go. to work with her after that. I she's think she's back at the university now. Ah, oh, there you go. So, we'll but she's it. she's described it. Her description when I first started it was: "This is the conversations that you have in the bar after a conference." And yes, I'm like that's that's fairly accurate. <laughs> Preferably before or after a wine or a beer. Well, during, matter, really, during, yeah, during. I'm not fussing. <laughs> No, I remember that night very fond. I remember that whole day of that night very fondly because we connected with some pretty special OTs, including Michael Iwaba all the way from the US. And um, that was my second time I got to meet Michael in Australia, which was pretty um, fortunate. Um, But it just, it took me back to my days when I went to the um, World Federation OT Conference here in Australia, I think, which was back in like... Yeah, yep. in Sydney. It was like 2006, I think yeah. it might have been. It's before I graduated, um, so I missed it. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So when was your year of graduation? 2008. 2008, yeah. So I think it was yeah. while I was at uni it was on, I think. Uh-huh. So that was a pretty magical time and a magical experience for us. Um, there was a small group of us who were involved, as I mentioned before, with UFRAS and we were just kind of on this trajectory of connecting with some pretty incredible OTs from around the world. We um, we sponsored sponsored an OT who worked with refugees over in Georgia, okay. the country of Georgia, um, and we did fundraising events. And my husband's a musician, and and we have musician friends, so we put together uh, performances and um, live music, you know, events and things yeah. to raise money. And we got this big bulk of money and we're like, what are we going to do with it? And so we decided to um, advertise for this scholarship for someone to come to Australia who worked directly with refugees, um, grassroots on the ground, you know, in the kind of, you know, sort of, yeah, in the field. And so we put it out there and we got this amazing, incredible, um, two actually amazing, incredible OTs because Woofit in the end, the World Federation OT decided to chip in money as well. And we were able to sponsor two scholarships for them to come over here to Australia. Yeah. So they came along to um, the World OT Conference um, in Sydney and we got to meet them. We got to, you know, exchange so much information and clinical experience and yeah, we developed and forged like some really lovely friendships with these two OTs from from Georgia. Um, and yeah, they flew back home and took the wonderful experience of Australia here back with them. And yeah, we continued that friendship and that professional relationship for quite some time. I'm pretty sure I remember seeing photos, I think, because so I met Clarissa at the state conference in Cairns. Right. In 2002. 12. Gosh, I reckon that's when you she was, she was wrote a, that article. Potentially. I hope. I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> that's that's where I that's where I first heard Ufras. Yes. Like I pretty much signed up on the spot because she was yeah. a, an invited speaker or a keynote speaker or something at that conference. So like yes. connected with her there. And um 
there wasn't that many members up this end of the country at the time. I think there was only a couple. But it, no, um, it was no. definitely, I think that was, that sponsoring was one of the examples she might, from memory, she used during her keynote of the different things that sort of Ufras had done and Ufras had achieved. Yes. Um, yeah. And I was yeah. like, man, this is, even if it's not like, like and at the time it wasn't an area I'd ever worked in or even considered working in, but I was just like, I'm sold. Like this is, yeah, this is OT. And she speaks about, she could sell ice to Eskimos. She speaks about oh, it with so much passion. It's Clarissa ridiculous. has so much eloquence and professional just Mm. passion and she's just this wealth of walking knowledge and wisdom I yeah I was very very blessed to be able to kind of work alongside her and work with her as my sort of the leader I guess or the the founding member um the key founding member of UFRAS and yeah spent a lot of time with Clarissa in those years (laughs) and she inspired me immensely with her leadership yeah very very much um, connected, heart-to-heart connection, but, yeah, very grassroots-based. So were you at Greenslopes the whole time? So when you first, I see, you, you said before, like, you started at Greenslopes, were you at that hospital right up until recently when you left? Yeah, yeah. So basically my journey has been, so I started as a baby new grad at Greenslopes Hospital back in 2005, Um cried heartbroken that I wasn't able to work with kids but you know obviously life has a plan and I always believe you know things happen for a reason and I was obviously drawn into that hospital and working in those areas for a particular reason so 2005 baby new grad Greenslopes Hospital I was there for about three years I think and then I spent a good chunk of time I think it was just over a year at another hospital um, building a pay management program so we established um, just basically from like ground level up totally like this green level position where I was thrown into the mix of creating this pain management department pretty much pain management program department you name it from scratch um and I went in there and there was I was it there was no other team <laughs> there was like nursing there was no other uh, there was a there was a bit of a rehab multidisciplinary team but that was it so I went into this role completely blindsided that it was basically me to set up this program Um, And I spent a good, you know, chunk of that first two or three months going, what the hell have I got myself into? I was like, yeah, coming home sort of in tears and thinking, you know, if if this doesn't get better in the next few weeks that I'm walking, you know, I did fall pregnant, you know, pretty quickly. And so that was added added an extra kind of um, element to the mix because I had terrible morning sickness um I was yeah sick as a dog right up until like my seventh eighth month of my pregnancy so I'm juggling this (laughs) management role (laughs) full-on like morning sickness um through that whole period it was it was rough I remember vomiting in the car on the way to work and getting like my hair stuck on the way to work to the hospital and then having to kind of like get out of the car and sort of like 
you know, I pretend everything was okay. Everything's and pretend fine. I everything's fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And I was like having panic attacks as I was like going to the hospital in the car because I was just so, I was, I was out of my depth. I think Brock, like I literally, I was like 20. What was I? I was a baby. I was like 23, 24, um, trying to tackle this management role. I was the youngest manager there by I think about 15 years. Like they were all like in their 40s and 50s, most of them even like late 50s. So here I am, 20-something-year-old, trying to create this program, this pain management department from the ground level up, pregnant, sick as a dog, you know, (laughs) vomiting in the car on the way to work. (laughs) But guess what? I got through it. You made it. And guess what? I made it. And it that was okay. Pro- it was okay. <laughs> and that program is still running to t- today. And they developed an adolescent program within the hospital. Um, you know, it's gone, you know, from, from a basic kind of like ground level um, to what it is today. And, yeah, I, I kind of look back and think, yeah, hopefully I had something to do with that, <laughs> building that foundation. A fair idea that you did. Hopefully, hopefully. But I had to recruit the team and everything. Like I was thrown into the HR side of things, like human resources. I was like having to do the interviews, having to call up, you know. So it's just I basically had to do very much an eclectic OT, put all the different hats on, jack of Mm. all trades kind of job. Plus I did the clinical. So I was the OT. We employed another OT in the team, but I was the OT on the ground like working in the program as well as all the other management responsibilities. So how, so, did, you, how did you not burn out doing all of that stuff? Well, that just kind of leads me into this journey of burnout, right? So I think I was on that trajectory of burnout before I started at, at that hospital building, mm-hmm. building the pay management program. Um, I think I was probably there in my teenage years, Um I stepped into some pretty heavy responsibilities, leadership roles during my teenage years at mm-hmm. high school, even at primary school, actually. Um, and I just had this, I don't know if it was, uh, it was just this ambitious, driven personality that had like this. Un- no, no, not at all. <laughs> Look, I've mellowed a lot. <laughs> I've had to, I've had to in the last, you know, since becoming a mum, I think, and then going through through different journeys myself. But, yeah, back in that day, I literally, I would see an opportunity or a project and I would just jump in, like no, no hesitation, high standards, perfectionistic traits, you know, got to get it right, otherwise the world's going to kind of crash and end. Um, yeah, so for me, I... I did that right from when I was about 10 or 11 years of age, like thinking back over the history of my life. Um, And I just pushed myself, you know, no matter what was going on in my personal world, and there was lots of intense stuff going on through teenage years, through, you know, my older sort of 20s, but I just, I focused, I think it became a little bit my coping mechanism to get through the tough stuff. I would throw myself into my work. I would throw myself into my studies, you know, and that kind of became my distraction. That became my focus. And because um, I was kind of 
when I throw myself into a project, as you know, Brock, <laughs> we've worked on a few in the background in, the, in our history, um, like I just throw myself in 150% and, and I have these very high standards, high expectations of myself. So when you bring all that into the mix, you're kind of like a recipe for disaster and a recipe for burnout. It started that little bit of a, a downhill Oh, slide towards my body just starting to hit its limits. Um, and there was a few physical health symptoms that were creeping in that I just kept ignoring and kept pushing aside and kept pushing on through. So, I think even, yeah. even that's an interesting thing because I think a lot of people uh, often are under this sort of misconception that burnout is like one thing happens. And that's it. Like it's too much where in my experience, and it sounds like it in yours as well, it's kind of almost an accumulation. It can be little things as well. It can be an accumulation of things over a longer period of time. Like for you, if you take one of those elements away from what was happening, it may have had a completely different thing. Like if you hadn't have been pregnant at the time or if you hadn't have had to do, say, all the HR stuff as well as everything else or if you hadn't had to do the clinical stuff on top of all the HR. Like if you take one of those elements away, it could have been a completely different situation, completely different story. But 100%. Yeah. Totally. And I think... Oh, I was going to add something to that. Sorry, Brock, I interrupted yeah. you because I had something amazing uh-huh. to say. No, I've lost it. Interrupt a um, What was I going to say? So, yeah, you're right. It is an accumulation and there's multiple elements involved. Um, I think for me, my personality has a big thing to do with it. So if I had actually learnt to say no <laughs> or if I had actually kind of reduce my standards like you know with this job that I took on I was in my early 20s you know I'm young I'm kind of like yeah I'm enthusiastic I'm a bit naive I'm ambitious all of that but I threw myself in and for me to accomplish what I accomplished by the end of that sort of 13 14 month stint I wanted it to be you know the bee's knees I I created two programs I didn't just create one I created an inpatient program and an outpatient program I you know I made sure that the multidisciplinary team were at the highest most you know I had some beautiful people working for me and working with me so I wanted to make sure you know all of that was up to that kind of level and so you know in those early 20s in those early years I didn't know how to say no and I didn't know how to reduce those standards of myself, you know. I still struggle with that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, to- I mean, I do too. I'm totally guilty of still struggling with people-pleasing and, you know, perfectionistic kind of like this idea that something has to be just right, just, you know. Um, I mean, I call myself a recovering perfectionist now I because I... <laughs> A recovering perfectionist because literally I know when I start to get obsessional about something, I start to just throw everything in and other things kind of fall by the wayside. It's usually my health. Um, I usually sacrifice my health. That's the first thing that goes. And then, you know, other things, you know, quality time with family and relationships and all that sort of stuff. So those sorts of things can start to um, suffer when you really throw yourself into um yeah, being too too kind of like tunnel vision focused with the projects that you take on. 
So mm. when did you know that you'd sort of hit that wall? Gosh, I mean, I think for me it happened multiple times. So when I was younger, it just happened at a very kind of um, more manageable level where I could sort of bounce back a little bit quicker. But I remember back in those early days, it was physical health would start to crumble. Um, energy levels would get really low. I wouldn't be able to sort of cope with day-to-day kind of pressures and normal everyday stuff. And things would just start to kind of overwhelm that feeling of overwhelm. And, you know, for me, anxiety has been a big, big part of my life since as long as I can remember. So symptoms of anxiety would just escalate through the roof. Um, Yeah. To a point where, panic attacks you know anxiety attacks would start to happen and I would kind of keep this under wraps really well in my 20s and I I was able to kind of fake that kind of what's the word you know that confidence and that kind of like I'm okay and everything's okay and I've got got all my shit together you know nothing's going to kind of fall apart so I was able to really fake it I guess in those early 20s and and through that younger period of time and bounce back a lot quicker um But, yeah, thinking back, definitely there was multiple times in that period um, where I guess you could say like I dropped the ball, like I dropped the sort of bundle a little. And it wasn't until basically, I mean, I'd had Indy, um, my beautiful first daughter. She's 10, going on 11 next year. Gosh. So that was how how long ago those horrible morning sickness months were. So 10, 11 years ago. Um, so I had Indy. That was a really beautiful time after I had Indy. One, I knew I didn't have to go back to that job. <laughs> so I was like, yes, that was my ticket out of there. So that was my 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 thing that was just, um, yeah, a big relief. But, no, first and foremost, to have this beautiful baby, I'd wanted to be a mum since as long as I can remember, um, falling pregnant with Indy, giving birth to Indy, um, you know, having my first child, having both my daughters, you know, but definitely with your first child, it's just that little bit extra kind of relief and and, and this special moment that, you know, get to be a mum. So during that period after I had Indy, it was kind of like this beautiful little honeymoon period of like, I'm, you know, I'm being a mum for the first time. I'm totally immersed in this beautiful kind of like period of my life where I'm, you know, living out this aspiration and dream I've had for a long time. And so that was a really beautiful period of our life. And then um, fell pregnant with Zara, like probably sooner than what we were expecting. Um as you know, all good things happen, things happen when they're meant to. But yeah, I fell pregnant with Zara. And I don't think my body had recovered even fully enough from my pregnancy with Indy. Mm. By the time I'd fallen pregnant with Zara, I was still having health issues, but I was pushing through and I was on this beautiful high of being a mum for the first time and really just feeling, you know, um, that I'd found a little bit of my niche, my groove as, as a mum. And I uh, I started back working at the hospital, um, not the management role. I decided that wasn't for me, particularly being a mum. That's fair. For now. <laughs> so I started back at Green Slopes Hospital, um, just casually, you know, taking on shifts and getting back, getting my, my foot back in the kind of OT bread and butter world. Um, 
And yeah, pregnant with Zara. And then oh, this is when life gets blurry for me as well. It just gets a little bit hazy because there was so many things going on for us. But in a nutshell, um, I won't do the long drawn out story of all the things that happened to us in such a short period of time. But basically we were slogged with curveball after curveball. Um, and the biggest kind of, oh, there was a couple of big things, but one of the big things was that uh, we lost our business at a period of time where I was super vulnerable. We had a little toddler. I was pregnant with Zara, <clears throat> struggling with a few health issues in the background. And, you know, it was our main source of income. It was, you know, and it was a, quite a successful little business that we had going. And um, obviously my husband ran it. Um, but I helped out from time to time with the bookkeeping and mm-hmm. admin side of things. And so just we were blindsided with the loss of the business. Um, and it wasn't under nice circumstances. It was under very ugly circumstances. So it w- it became a huge stressor for us. And that went on for months and months and months of us trying to kind of recoup and perhaps yeah, reclaim our business and have some income flow and income periphery. Um, but then we had some major stuff going, like life happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we lost some family members, um, you know, way too soon. We were sort of having to sort of, yeah, move through grief, the grieving process all of all of that. And then... Um, my sister, who is, you know, my closest, let's say my closest human to me in my life, my bestest friend, you know, um, she went through a very difficult traumatic birth with her, um, her second baby. And um, this actually happened after, this is where it all gets blurry because I'd already had Zara. We were still struggling with not having an income, losing our business, all that sort of stuff. And then it was after I'd had Zara, which was a, an amazing birth, by the way. If you ever, if anyone wants to learn about um, hypnobirthing, I'm sure it'd be up your alley, Brock. <laughs> I'm already well versed. I'm sure. <laughs> no, but for anyone out there who wants to know about um, beautiful, calm ways to labour and hypnobirthing contact me get in touch but because my second birth with Zara even though we were in at a really peak stressful period of our life in our family I had the most magical beautiful labor and birth with her so that was such a blessing um uh, she was a nine pound um roly-poly gorgeous little bundle of joy too so yeah she was like four kilograms yeah, but that's yeah, a big had, yeah that's a, that's a big baby <laughs> And I'm not, a, you know, I'm quite a small framed um, person. So for, for me to carry her, yeah. you know, all the way through and then at the end, you know, natural birth, it was just a beautiful, magical experience, um, quite a contrast to my first birth okay. in Indy. So, yeah, I got to, to have the two sides. Um, yeah, so we'd, we had Zara um, and was enjoying, you know, this beautiful new life into, into our world. Um, but, yeah, I, I had this, there was this moment where I remember um, it was kind of like that whole straw on the camel's back. Um, but just hearing news, um, you know, I had a little six-week-old, a little toddler, um, things going on in the background for us, and then hearing the news um 
my it was a phone call from my mom and she told me that Rachel had been rushed to hospital so that was um kind of like the straw for me and I think that was the moment where all those a little accumulated burnout series that had kind of led up to that point that was the moment that everything just crashed for me my sister and my beautiful nephew got through that experience and you know my nephew's growing up as healthy and, and gorgeous as ever. Um, so very grateful that we moved through that that really um, intense sort of, yeah, very <laughs> traumatic experience for mm. all of us. Um, but, yeah, for me it was kind of just this, this shock to the system. And I guess you could probably in that moment, I just I still remember the moment that, basically my my knees hit the floor like I was holding my six-week-old baby and my knees hit the floor and I remember I felt like this is it like this is my little breaking point where gosh how am I going to get back from this so from that moment uh yeah it took it took about two years just kind of rehabilitate myself back to the land of the living I guess um, because physically, mentally, emotionally, on all those areas, um, I was just depleted, completely depleted. So when you go through long periods of stress, um, when you go through that chronic um, accumulative stressors and even some traumatic experiences within that, your, you know, your adrenals are completely bombarded um your you know your your neurotransmitters your biochemistry everything is literally taken out and um for me that it had gone on for too long and then it just hit that moment where it was like okay time to to kind of hit rock bottom and then rebuild and replenish and rejuvenate and yeah that was kind of the start of my journey to becoming the you know like it was it was a, it was a long journey hmm. it's uh it, i always find it interesting because uh, a lot of people again i think a lot of the time that this sort of topic is talked about it's talked about like you know it'll be burnout and ot's not one of the things that you mentioned other than that job was that anything to do with ot and I think that's oh, an important thing to point out is that this yeah. stuff isn't, it's not an OT thing. It's not it's a, a healthcare no. thing. It's not a anything thing. It's a life thing. It's, it's, it's a life thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, yes, we're dealing with it because we are OTs, which is why we're talking about it here. But it's something that the people we work with, our managers, our family, like they're all going to go through it. There could be a homeless dude somewhere that's going through burnout because he's got so many stresses. Like it's got nothing to do with the profession itself. No. And I I think it's important to recognise that all like in helping professions, Mm. we're probably more at risk. So there's a higher level of risk of burnout. And it doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, like we're humans having this human experience and we're going into our jobs in these helping professions where we have to exert a whole lot of emotional, psychological, physical energy in our jobs and in our roles. And OTs, yeah, just the same as doctors, just the same as, and, you know, doctors, are their stress levels are probably even through the roof. I remember my first 
um, client, my first client that I had as a holistic OT dealing with integrative wellness was a doctor. And this particular doctor was dealing with burnout. So, you know, the profession, um, the health professional field is basically you're just more at risk of depletion and burnout. And then when you've got life happening around you and, you know, there's phases and periods of, of time where just shit happens, you know, mm-hmm. one after another and it's just like, you know, you can't sort of catch your breath, you can't catch a break and it's in those moments that, it can be kind of that danger sort of zone. And I think that's what we as health professionals need to be really uh, aware of and um, kind of kind of have each other's backs in this area, like recognise we are humans coming from these personal worlds that are full of stressors and full of intense stuff and we come into our hospital places or we come into our clinic or our school settings or wherever we might be working and we bring all this with us. Mm. Um, you know, and there's this loading effect, this accumulative effect, and it could be something that happens really simple at the workplace. You know, it could be just a, a conversation with a colleague that's intense, or it could be that you're dealing with someone up on the wards that's dying from cancer and you're working in palliative care and you're having to work with the family and the intensity of that, and that triggers, you know, the wounds within you. And there's this concept that I think we need to be aware of, of empathy fatigue, of, um, you know, uh, what are some other words? You know, there's burnout, there's depletion, there's, you know, being aware of all of this that goes on that Mm. affects our physical, mental, emotional body. Um, Yeah. I think I I do think that OT as a profession is in a really good place to actually help people with it. Um, yes. And I, I agree with you. Like people in a helping profession uh, are probably at more risk of burning out or probably in particular compassion fatigue um, yeah. than, you know, people in other professions, whatever they are. I'm not going to list them, but other professions. Um one thing I, I'm curious about is because it's I'm as uncomfortable as it is. I'm a, a big advocate when I was working clinically of sometimes people have to sit with things, and it's not a matter of us going in and OTs are bad at this because we're too good at other things, but <laughs> where we go in and we want to fix things, something's wrong, we need to fix it. But sometimes there's a, a process, and sometimes that process is time. How long when you sort of, when you first sort of, like you were talking about before, like you felt like this is it, this is that final straw. Yeah. Yeah. This thing isn't, it's not like a yo-yo. You don't just sort of like, boop, rock bottom, bounce bounce back back up. There's, and I'm speaking from my own personal experience here as well, there's a period of time where, yeah, okay, you hit rock bottom, you're going to sit there for a while and it sucks. But Mm -hmm. I think that it's also a necessary part of the process. Obviously, you don't want to stay there too long. When it gets drawn out, then it becomes an issue. But I think it gives you a lot of time to start processing what's happened, where you are, taking stock of, you know, your support networks, yourself, your own personal resources, your personal attributes, if we're going to look at Kawa. Um, (laughs) That's right. But it gives you that time, that space. And Yes, it's a very uncomfortable space, but it's just something that needs to happen. How long for you? So for me... 
when I sort of well, I've told my burnout story on a previous uh, podcast, but when I sort of hit that rock bottom bit, it was like at the worst of it, it was probably a couple of weeks before I mm. sort of even had the capacity to go, okay, like here's what I'm going to do. Mm. How long do you reckon it was for you when you first sort of went off from that point where you went like, this is it, this is the final mm-hmm. straw. How long was it before you could start, I guess, thinking clear enough to start trying to make a plan or start trying to consciously do something about it? Yeah, good question. Um, And I think you're so right about being okay about not being okay and being in the uncomfortableness, Um, knowing that there's something um, incredibly... Like being in that uncomfortableness is like your catalyst for change. If you don't have that uh, very sort of icky, uncomfortable, gosh, this is kind of rock bottom moment for me, you're not going to make the changes that are going to create a different trajectory, a different um, progression and way forward. And it's certainly a journey and a process. And I know that word journey is so cliche, but it is such a process to work your way from rock bottom um, to learning how to put yourself back together again in a more resilient, strong, uh, integrated way um, and unlearn some of those behaviours, unlearn some of those habits and patterns that got you there in the first place. So for me personally, like, oh, gosh, that was, you know, I had a baby, I had a little baby, I had a toddler. So for me, it took a lot longer. Yeah, I had other stuff going on in my life, um, other responsibilities, you know, juggling balls in the air, I guess. Um, and, we, you know, there was still accumulative financial stresses going on for us as well. So for me personally, it took probably a lot longer than if it was an isolated incident where you didn't have all that other peripheral stuff going on. Um, but yeah, for me, it was two years. It was two solid years. And I'm talking like 100% committed to my self-care, 100% committed to changing, you know, and unlearning patterned behaviours that led me to that point, changing the way that I responded to stressors in my environment, in my external world, you know, learning that life happens, life doesn't stop. Um, a little proverb or a little saying that I quite often quote, um, you know, with my clients and, and I use for myself is we can't stop the waves, but we can learn how to surf. And so teaching those skills of resilience and balance and, you know, learning how to kind of, yeah, ride the waves of adversity um, is a really important skill to have. And, and it's, your, it's your key for burnout prevention and also burnout recovery. So, yeah. So what was your, because it's going to be different for everyone, obviously, but what was your step one? What was the first yeah. thing that you went, okay, this is what I got to do first? I still remember it. I still okay. remember it clear <laughs> as a day, like clear as mud. Clear as mud? No. Clear as crystal. Not clear as mud. Um, so clear as crystal, I still remember there was like, 
actually there was two things that happened. One thing was that I had a massive panic attack in the middle of the night. It was actually in the early hours of the morning. I just breastfed um, Zara, put her back to sleep. I was getting settled in and thinking, yes, you know, try and get some, some, some sleep. Um, and I totally got the worst panic attack, anxiety attack that I've experienced and probably have never experienced again since that time. And it was literally feeling like, as the kind of name says, like I was being attacked and I felt like death was at my door and it was scary as hell. And I remember thinking, I never want to go through this again. I never want to kind of experience this depth of kind of terror and um, being so scared in all my life. And it was, you know, it was early hours of the morning. It's dark, you know, both kids were asleep. And it, it was that moment where I was like, I have got to do something about this. And the very next day, I remember thinking, I remember doing a little bit of yoga meditation type of stuff when I was pregnant with the ND to get through that intense time. Um, but I just did it like via a, a DVD. I mm-hmm. threw on a DVD and I just did some really kind of, yeah, casual OT sort of, yeah, yoga, yoga belly, I think it was called. Um, and I just remember remembering the next day thinking, God, I've got to get back to that. I've got to learn how to find that calm state again. And I jumped on my laptop and I, or my phone at the time, I can't remember it was phone or laptop, but I remember Googling yoga in my local area. So I put my suburb and I put yoga. And the first thing that came up was this yoga class called Yoga of the Heart. And I thought, beautiful bang there it is that's my you know that's my ticket to rehabilitating myself out of this space and um I was still you know I still had a little bub I thought how am I going to get to classes and I'm like I don't care I'm going to make it work and I just decided you know I I fed Zara before I left I booked in to go it was the it was on a Tuesday night I still remember it was a Tuesday night it was down the road and really convenient. So I left Bub with my husband, bundled myself up. I don't even think I had a yoga mat, but the teacher said, don't worry, just turn up. And I turned up and I I went into the little local kind of like this, this little community setting, yoga of the heart with the beautiful Jackie. I still remember beautiful Jackie, the teacher. And um, I did this yoga class and it was about a 60 minute class And at the end, they do this relaxation called Shavasana. I don't know if you've heard of Shavasana. So it's this deep, deep rest. And it happens at the end of the yoga class. So I did all the asanas, which is what you call all the postures and all the movements. And I'm like, well, this feels okay. My body was still in a high state of alert. There was still so much anxiety rattling around. And by the end of the class, I just thought, gosh, I still feel anxious. I still feel, and I was anxious to be there Mm. with people around me as well. Like I had this agoraphobia that I developed. I didn't want to get out of the house. I was isolating myself completely. Even just to talk to someone else was anxiety provoking for me. So to go to this class was you know, big step. Then to actually do the class and get through it was my next big step. I got to the end. We started Shavasana. I'd never done Shavasana. Like I'd only ever done the postures and positions and some breathing work. 
we, this is where we lay down on the mats and basically you do nothing. And I'm like, gosh, okay, this amazing. is different. It's, <laughs> it is freaking amazing. Walk around, find some space now. <laughs> Get your yoga mat out, yeah. totally. I will teach you Shavasana one day. You, you can come to one of my classes one of these days down the track. And Sounds good. Do Shavasana. Anyway, so you lie down on a mat and basically the teacher walks you through this deep, restful process. And I remember the for the first time in years, like this wasn't just months, this was years and years. For the first time I got this little window where... I felt stillness. I felt this relaxation kind of like switch flick on. It was only for like I reckon I would say maybe three seconds at the most. But I was hooked. Like that three (laughs) seconds hooked me in. And I was like, this is what I need more of. I want more of that. I don't want just three seconds. Like I want 30 seconds. I want a minute. I want, you know. So, yeah, that first yoga class, that was my first ever yoga class I went to and I never looked back. So that was that was it. That was the moment. Um, and, yeah, Jenny went much further and, you know, there was so much more involved than just yoga in my re- rehabilitation. Um, but, yeah, that, that was the starting point for me. So what, mm. other, what other stuff did you do? Actually, so that was something you added in. Was there anything that – so I know for me one of my first steps was essentially getting rid of a heap of stuff out of my life. Right, like what, material stuff. Uh, well, that was – yeah, well, that was part of it. But also like I took a step back from heaps of like OT-related stuff at the time like when we met. Projects. Projects and, and all that sort of stuff. Like I took a step back from heaps of that because – some of the uh, the best advice still I ever got in that situation was from a really good friend of mine, and she said, "You have for the time being, it's gonna suck, but for the time being, you have to be selfish." And for someone who works in this kind of profession, that's a weird, like mm, you, even just concept. hearing it, you're like, oh, "It doesn't. Uh, do I have to? Uh, it doesn't sound right. Like it sounds like you're gonna be a bad person if you do that or something." But once I was, when you're in that headspace, it makes sense because you spend so much time, like at the time, like I was working with clients and you're stressing about that and you're stressing about, you know, making sure that the workplace is happy with your documentation and you're doing your right shifts and then you've got your home life and everything that's going on there. And if you actually sit and reflect, 90% of the stuff I was doing, I was doing for other people. Like all of the OT projects, a lot of online stuff, networking stuff, community development stuff was all for other people. So getting or hearing that advice and going, oh, okay, maybe I really do. At the time, I didn't really have any sort of, I didn't really have any even like hobbies that were just for me. Like I was would do things to help other people or I would do things because, oh, that's what my mates were doing or something like that. But I never really had anything like, no, I did, this is just for me. Mm. So, like, one of my first steps was not necessarily getting rid of it, but taking a step back from a lot of that stuff to give me the space to start exploring mm. some other stuff Making that space. was just for me. So, yeah, was did, totally. did you have any 
like a similar thing with that? Like, did, was there stuff that you had to take a step back from or get rid of from life in order to, uh, I guess, start this sort of rehabilitation kind of process? Mm. I think, you know, it's in our conditioning, right? We're taught, well, we're not taught from when we're little to look after ourselves. Mm. We're not taught to prioritise self-care. We, And particularly when, you know, the personality of being a helper and being someone who gets satisfaction out of, you know, service and being in a role where you get to, um, yeah, assist other people to have more meaningful sort of richer lives, we tend to use that as our go-to, as our focus. So not only are we not taught to uh, take care of ourselves when our personality is driven to be there for, mm. for everyone else and, and to kind of immerse ourselves in, yeah, the people and the projects and the, the things that, that are of service, we forget about what's important to us. Um, and definitely I think as occupational therapists, you know, there's that element of knowing the the importance of meaningful engagement in the things that light you up, that are meaningful to you, that connect with you, heart, soul, mind, spirit, you know, that are going to uplift you and, and make you feel kind of alive from the inside out. You know, we're passionate about encouraging others to engage in that but we're pretty bad at making sure we do it ourselves, you know, practising what we preach. Um, And I think, you know, as a mum, and I'm speaking as an occupational therapist and a mum, we tend to just be focused on, you know, the kids, our our children, what do they need? Also, what do our clients need? What needs to be given there? And it's like this giving, giving, you know, and and you become like your cup sort of starts to kind of become very empty. Your fuel tank gets, um, you know, very low. So coming back to your question of, you know, how do we personally like as a mum I think first and foremost it had to be a matter of self-care became my priority and then from there as I started to sort of become a little stronger physically my health started to kind of um, balance out I I was able to for me you know how you said it was getting rid of stuff for me Mm. it was kind of like getting rid of inner baggage for me lots of inner baggage and unlearning some of those behaviours like what you said, you know, the constantly looking externally of where to Mm. give yourself and what to do. So for me it was uh, totally like taking that heavy backpack off and this took time, you know. (laughs) These are deeply ingrained habits. And when you've gone through trauma, when you've gone through, you know, intense stuff and there's stuff that I know I was still carrying from my childhood, there was heavy baggage that I was still still was holding on to subconsciously. You know, this wasn't a conscious yeah, yeah. decision that I'd made. But, you know, being, being an empath, which, you know, most therapists tend to be, this is why we love helping people because we have that very empathic quality. So you tend to take on other people's baggage as well. So healthy boundaries is what I had to learn, Brock. Like literally, yeah, 
letting go of the inner baggage and then creating these healthy boundaries so that I wasn't taking on all this external stuff so much anymore. Um, And then that created space. So when you get rid of stuff, you create space. And then as space started to be created in my inner world, it also started to be created in my outer world. And then I was able to start engaging in the stuff that really lit me up, made me feel good, made me feel purposeful and engaged. And I think, you know, this was kind of getting into the, you know, projects that I love and that make me feel like I'm making a difference that they were the occupations that lit me up mostly, Mm. you know, again, yes, it was a focus to be of service and how, how I can make the, the world a better place, kind of like this big, you know, vision that, you know, you tend to have, well, I tend to have since I was little, but how can I make the world a better place? This made me feel good if I could immerse myself in those sort of projects. Um, and I think, you know, for me, creating my website, creating my private practice, um, getting into learning more about how to look after the mind and the body, they become the occupations that became my healing impetus but Mm. also became my meaningful way of engaging you know with the things that that mattered the most to me i'm gonna gonna throw an alternative argument at you to something you said before so you, you talked about how you didn't feel like we get taught how to look after ourselves and i disagree with that but only on a minor point in that i think we do but we get taught wrong Ah, yes. So I think I I think that a lot of the time, and it's you know due to I mean we think back to the ads and stuff that were on TV when we were kids, um, and we look at even now as OTs we can look at like previous health models and that kind of thing, and up until you know we sort of probably got to adulthood, looking after yourself was about eating healthy and exercise, and that was it. You're right. Uh, yes. And there was even, I'm trying to think, there was a... Like what was a, that ad? A, a, yeah, something. With the, 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 the big Microwave guy, meal things that were like, it's yes. looking after yourself. It's, yeah, it's, anyway. Yes. But there's, yeah, like, that's what I mean. Like, you can remember ads from when we were kids that fit that mold completely. That, uh-huh. that was it. Like, and it was very much now thinking about, like, the previous health models. Health then was sort of the absence of illness or disease, which is now what we know it's not just that. But back then that's what, even if it wasn't, that's what uh, health departments were looking at it as. That's what a lot of marketing companies and, you know, that kind of thing that were actually selling us health because health is a a commodity, whether you like that idea or not. People are selling health, whether it's with, you know, essential oils or cereal like it doesn't matter like everyone is selling health we're selling health as ot's we're marketing ourselves to sell this brand of holistic health and yes okay it sounds unsexy to say that but it's true that's what we're doing whether we work Mm. in public health or private health or whatever it is we're still marketing it to sell it it's a commodity and that's how it's been viewed over the longest time i think why I say it's been taught wrong is because it was literally only eating exercise. And that was the only two things there was, but there's so much more to it. Like you touched on it before, like there's connection and creativity and all these other aspects to being healthy, to being, you know, to having good well-being. that that's the bit that we were never taught. 
Absolutely. And I think that's where my passion came in really strong after my personal experiences. Because I was like, hang on a minute, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, move my body and I'm trying to eat well you know, but that's not enough. Yeah. What, what, what else, you know, what else can I add to the mix? And what I found what was so beautiful on this journey, I'm so grateful of the occupational therapy framework for this was that seeing the person as a multi-dimensional, multi-factorial, um, you know, human that has, you know, we're not just moving, eating, robots you know we have these very rich um, very (laughs) in-depth most of us yes um we have these very rich very um deep you know internal emotional psychological and even spiritual parts that make us up as humans and health encompasses all of that and for me when I went through my you know let's call it breakdown, breakthrough, burnout moment, um, it, it, you know, there was, it wasn't just physically that mm-hmm. something was going on for me. You know, it was emotionally, psychologically, socially. You know, I wasn't, I didn't want to get out of the house because I was so consumed with my physical kind of symptoms and illness and, and my mental health like there was that agoraphobia that I developed and then there's the spiritual as well you know like the inner spirit what lifts your spirit nothing was lifting my spirit mm. at that point in time I was in pure survival mode and there was nothing there was that inner aliveness that inner spirit was yeah it was depleted it was disconnected is probably a better word so absolutely we're not taught to look after our emotional health, our mental health, our spiritual health, our social connections, you know. Um, so, yeah, this this was new territory for me. And, yeah. And I think, yeah. like, for, for me, one of the biggest things, again, something that was never really taught as a concept, um, was having a creative outlet because I never even sort of realised that that was something that I needed until I needed it <laughs> yeah so like, I was, like a lot and i'm of the, loving seeing your creative a of, outlets <laughs> a lot of the projects that i did yeah okay for some people like i did a lot of like web design and that kind of stuff I, i've had websites for years and for different things and different projects and then i had you know facebook communities like mh4ot and that kind of stuff but yes they're very useful resources and yes they serve our purpose but the meaning wasn't there even though for some people i guarantee some people find i know some people that will find like designing web pages creative like a creative outlet for me even though i could be doing exactly the same thing as them the meaning was different like it wasn't a creative thing for me it was more of a purposeful like i need to do this because it'll lead to something else it was for another purpose um and i the sitting back and creating that space like we talked about earlier to again for me to get selfish and find things that like hobbies just for me tapping into and experimenting a little bit with some sort of creative things like i did a little bit of painting and random stuff still got paintings hanging up in the house that i did um, yeah i saw you show me those that's yeah. right uh that 
you know, and yes, okay, that's not something that sort of stuck, but I did it and it felt good and I went, okay. So it's not necessarily the painting that felt good in that instance. It was the fact that I was creating something. I was expressing myself. I was trying something new. And I've done a, a couple different things since then. My latest thing, as you were saying before, is like photography and I'm really sort of getting into that and not just the actual photographing but even editing to create moods with different photos and scenes and that kind of stuff. And I, I'm finding that at the moment to be a really, really powerful way for my creativity to show. And I've had people, my wife doesn't like half the photos I take. She's, <laughs> she's, much, she's, the, she's the type of person that wants the photo to look exactly as it did when you were looking at it with your eyeballs. And I'm uh-huh. the kind of person that wants to create a mood. So I'll, you know, make things darker or desaturate pictures or, you know, make them black and white or whatever it is. Um, so again, the same thing, like that's the same occupation, but two very different meanings. She looks at it very much as a, I don't know, I guess a, a form of, uh, documentation. Like she's documenting what happened, like what's in front yes. of you. You want a, yeah. a clear picture, almost like a, you know, a physical memory. Uh, whereas I'm trying to like, literally I'm trying to create a mood from a scene or from a picture or from a, something that you know, wasn't normally there. Like I've taken photos of some weird dam and created something sort of dark and moody out of it. Um, mm. Taking photos of a fence, like you take photos of anything and just so try and create something from it. So for me, that's at present anyway. That's my current sort of creative outlet, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. But that's very cool. Whether it's going to be that way forever, who knows? Whether it's going to be something that I do for the rest of my life maybe maybe not um and that's the beauty of creativity there's yeah. no rules and that's you know? that's I think that's the thing is again I'm not doing it like I said there's people including people very close to me that don't like what I'm doing and that's okay because I'm not doing it for them I'm doing it for me and it's serving its purpose for me yeah and and for creativity to serve its purpose is through the process, mm. not the outcome. You know, it's that exploratory process. It's, you know, that helps light up that part of your brain that's really connected to our emotions, actually. So creativity is, is, is an avenue for emotional expression as well. So yeah. you're literally able to express, you know, your inner world in, you know, something that, you yourself can look at and see the beauty in that and see the, you know, uniqueness. So, yeah, it's very cool. What else do you think or what other things have you used? So you've used yoga, you did some meditation and stuff you spoke about earlier. What other things did you even experiment, stuff that didn't stick? Is there anything that didn't stick that you tried during your sort of rehab type process? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. That makes me think. Um <laughs> thinking's good right um oh gosh what did I try that didn't stick you know there was points where I tried to go a little bit gung-ho with my physical kind of fitness um and it was probably a little too soon to push myself so I think you know any guidance or advice on anyone who's 
you know, wanting to replenish, wanting to uh, recover from depletion of some sort, um, you know, don't try and push yourself too physically, too soon, too hard, you know. So um, when you bring that kind of very driven, uh, ambitious personality into recovery or into personal development or into creativity, for example, you're going to have blowouts because it's not, you know, you're not designed to kind of push to your limits when there's other stuff going on. So to take a bit more of a gentle approach. So yeah, some things that I had to kind of do away with was like maybe going for a big run, you know, that was just too much for my system. Or, you know, I think I even experimented with going to the gym a little bit more. Um, again, that was, it just didn't kind of fit and work and it made me feel more exhausted and more depleted. Um, I think, but I, I don't think that has to be a fit. I don't, I think you can apply that same theory to anything. I don't think it has to be just the physical stuff, like even the, the mental stuff. Like if you go right. like yes. dive in head first, then there's a good chance that you're going to go, okay, this is too much. I don't like it and not yes. go any further. Whereas if you kind of ease into it, then you've got a better chance of it taking, you're going to, you know, pick up a lot more of the nuance of the, whatever the occupation itself is, and you're probably going to get more out of it. Yes. And I did that too. You know, I did that with um, like mental kind of fitnessy type of stuff, mm-hmm. mental, like I, I, yeah, I would go gung ho and I'd push and I'd have blowouts. Um, even with emotional healing, you know, like healing from trauma or healing from emotional um, things that you've that have gone on for you or are presently going on for you. It's not a process that you can force. Mm. It's definitely a process that you need to kind of Ride ease into. Ride the wave. <laughs> yeah. So and. It's funny that brings me into kind of like the next phase of my recovery was this surrender, this concept of surrendering into, um, surrendering into the process rather than pushing, controlling, trying to drive it, like pushing boulders up hills, you know. I did that for probably the first 30 years of my life, pushed boulders. Yeah, Yeah, pushing boulders up hills, you know. And yeah, there's so like working with the young um, people that I work with now, so many um, with that type of personality, that's their kind of their programmed habits of just, it has to be really hard, really gung ho. And if you're not pushing yourself to your limits, you're not going to get improvements. You're not going to get outcomes. But, yeah, there's definitely um, this beautiful kind of like dance this balance of, of, you know, uh, what did I, I was talking about this the other day of this discipline and surrender, this beautiful kind of dance between the two. And then you can to the sweet spot is flow. So whatever you might be putting yourself into, whether it's recovery from burnout, whether it's a recovery from a chronic illness, whether it's anxiety, depression, mental health, you know, challenges that might be going on for you. If you can work this beautiful discipline, surrender, balance, this dance and find that sweet spot, that sweet spot of flow, that's when the the magic happens. That's when the healing happens. So, 
um, if I can encourage that on anyone's journey, you know, yeah. And discipline isn't, what else did I read the other day? It said, you know, um, self-discipline is the highest act of self-love. And I loved that. Self-discipline is the highest act of self-love. So if we can bring that element of self-care in all aspects that what make us human, emotional, psychological, physical, spiritual, social, um, bringing in that element of self-care, self-love through our discipline um, processes and our discipline sort of steps, but doing with doing it with this lovely kind of like, yeah, less force and more surrendering into that process, we get this flow, we get this, this healing uh, process that can happen. I think one of the interesting things that's happened sort of practice-wise in the last, oh, it's probably not even that long, probably in the last maybe five years, is I think previously burnout was one of those things where you're like, you burn out and then you get better from it. Whereas I think it's almost getting more airtime now where people are like, how can I prevent it? And I mm-hmm. think one of the good things is, uh, I personally think it's it, it's hard to get your head around what it's like unless you've been there and that goes for anything mental illness physical illness anything like that um but that doesn't mean that you can't you know prevent yourself from burning out without actually burning out like you don't have to completely burn out in order to change your life and uh look after yourself better absolutely and that is certainly um I guess the the teaching that I want to put across and, and the clients that I still see now and that I've seen over the years um, is, yeah, you don't have to hit rock bottom <laughs> to work out better ways to care for your, your mind and your body and, and you know, your mental health. Um, certainly prevention is definitely um a focus that should really be brought in more and more into the workplace. Um, and certainly, you know, as young people going through high school and going through tertiary studies, you know, how do we help and support them to ensure that they don't follow that path towards, yeah, depletion and burnout? Um, so, yeah, prevention is. Um, yeah, for sure. So for for people that, well, I mean, there might be people listening that might be sort of approaching this this burnout level or there might be people that are, you know, going, oh, crap, I don't want that to happen to me. And I, I think I, I, like I, I know I tell my story as a, a, a cautionary tale of please don't let yourself get to this level. Um, but what what are some things you think just anyone can start looking at to try and, uh, you know, not, not even looking at burnout, just be, uh, get more well-being, just be better. <laughs> get more well-being, yeah. I love that. Let's put that as our little, fr- that's what okay. we can call this podcast, how to get, how to more, get more well-being. That's terrible love English, it. but I like it. Love it. <laughs> so how can we get more well-being? Um, I guess essentially, oh, gosh, Recognize, well, first and foremost, knowing when to seek out help, knowing when to reach out, knowing when to basically um, 
put your hand up and say, I need a little extra help here. I need someone to talk to. I need, you know, guidance, support, whatever it might be. Um, and sometimes we don't even know how to do that. So if we can encourage those around us, we can encourage either, you know, loved ones, family members, people that we work with, our colleagues that, you know, it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to reach out and ask for help. And this goes with, you know, whatever might be going on in someone's life, whether it's, um, you know, struggling, struggling with your own mental health, struggling with personal challenges, you know, in your personal life, whether it's struggling with things at work, just to talk about it and to reach out, I think is a really important first step. Um, and giving others permission and almost like a really gentle kind of nurturing nudge in that direction is really important. Um, and then also recognizing that, yeah, like what we were sort of saying at the beginning, that we are these, you know, humans that have multiple needs, you know, we're not just robots, we're not just machines that need to be moved and need to be fed. Um, there's just so much more to us and recognizing, you know, whether it's burnout prevention, whether it's recovery, whether it's just, what was it? To, to, to get good to, well-being. To get more well-being. <laughs> to get more well-being. Um, you know, whatever it might be, recognizing that we need to look after our physical, mental, emotional, and even our spiritual well-being. And what that looks like for, for everyone is unique and different because we all have different histories. You know, men and women are quite different, you know, different personality types. Um, you know, as I said before, some people might love going to the gym four days a week and that's their stress release and they feel really good about it and, you know, it's their go-to. Go for me, it's not. I need more nourishing, nurturing, kind of uh, more flowing sort of activities in my life, yoga, um, like a gentle kind of brisk walk somewhere rather than, you know, a full-on run. You know, you've got to work out what suits you and what fits right for you. Same um, with meditation. Some people go, oh, gosh, you know, meditation, that's not for me. I can't meditate. What does that even mean? But, you know, there's all different forms and you've just got to, you know, do your research, look what's available, check in with someone who has a bit of a, you know, multidimensional skill set of tools that can sort of show you different different things that, that you can utilise. Um, but, yeah, different breathing techniques, different focus techniques, different kind of embodied practices. Um, you've got to work out what works for you. So, yeah, and on an emotional level, you know, some people um, are very good at expressing their emotions. Some people need a little bit of extra help and a little bit of extra encouragement and just, you know, working out what it is that works for you and trying to seek out the right supports to help you with that. I think, yeah. what, I think one of the things that's really important, we kind of touched on it a little bit but not directly, is that, the the process going from you know even if you do end up completely burning out say hitting rock bottom and then dragging yourself out of that hole for lack of a better term it, it's not linear and you you're going to take steps backwards during that process as well 
Yeah. Uh, like I was saying before, like <clears> the <throat> stuff that I tried, and yes, it wasn't a huge step back, but the stuff that I tried and I went, oh, this sucks. Like this, you know, I don't like this at all. And so I'll hang up that hook and try something else. Um, there's going to be times when like life doesn't stop. That's the other thing is while you're doing mm. all this, life keeps going. So there's going to be, you know, normal crap that happens in people's lives that still happen while you're sort of dragging yourself out of a, a burnout phase. Mm. And that's okay. It's okay to not be okay. Like it's okay yeah. to take that step back I, I always, like I used to use a lot of solution-focused brief intervention um, when I was working mental health. As long as you're pointing or aiming to try and always point in that positive direction, that's all anyone can ask of you at that point in time. So, mm-hmm. you know, stuff goes wrong, that's okay. We take it in our stride, we adjust, we adapt, we keep trying to move forward. Yes, we're moving forward from a different point than we were at before, but we're still trying to move forward. Like that's that's all anyone. That's the meaning of life. That's what I keep telling my students. The meaning of life is to constantly improve. So mm. whether you're at rock bottom or you're at your absolute top of your game, the okay, aim is to still constantly improve. No one sort of gets to the top and goes, that's it, I'm done. Like mm. You don't see like say Roger Federer or something, he hits number one in the world and he's like, ah, that's it, I've done it and I'm finished now. I'm as good <laughs> as I'm ever going to get. Like, that's not how we as humans work. So uh, it's okay to take a step back. Um, Yeah. And and it's okay to be in a bit of a holding pattern sometimes too, you know. Like, I think think when you've got that personality of constant self-improvement, you can beat yourself up and be really hard on yourself when you feel like you're not progressing. So sometimes even giving yourself permission to go, it's okay to be dog paddling right now. It's okay to be in a holding pattern, but think this will change and this will pass and we're going to work on strategies and look at what we can bring into the mix to help support you through this. Um, And it's moving like helping people move out of that survival mode into thriving mode, I think is a really key point. Um, But it's okay, you know, to be stuck for a little while, but we're going to, we're going to make sure that that doesn't happen for too long. I love it. I love it. (laughs) If people want to look you up, where can they find you? Oh gosh. Good question. I'm in the throes of um, getting a new little site set up, but that might be a little way in the future. But if people um, people can look at my original website at the moment, so this is something I developed over a number of years. Um, it's a bit of a labour of love and there's a few things that I've got in there that are quite informative. So if you want to jump on, it's Jess Leggett, so it's just my name, .com. Um, and yeah, you can find out a little bit more about me and my story and my services and a little bit more about my journey on there. Um, there's a few resources yeah. and stuff on there as well. Isn't there's it? resources. Like audio there. stuff on there as well. Oh gosh. I'm not sure if, no, there's no I'm audio yet. I do have a YouTube channel that is just kind of starting to kind of build. 
Um, I'm doing some meditation, little med- mini meditation series at the moment where I'm just putting something really simple and, um, you know, easy to put in your day-to-day kind of routines up. So there are some recordings on my YouTube channel, which I think you can get to via my website. But anyway, just Google That's my right. name. I'll put the just link in the like show it. Notes. Put the link in the show notes. People will find me. Um, You know, if you do want to reach out and get in contact with me, I am open for questions. I'm very approachable. Um, There's there's an email on my uh, website. So feel free to, yeah. um, This is the third time that Jeff's shown up in your life, then definitely shoot her an email. (laughs) I love it. It's a sign, it has to happen. Three times and you act on it. That's it. No hesitation. To. Meant to be. The universe is be. telling you you have to. That is the messages from the universe, totally. <laughs> pointing pointing you in the right direction. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. We've I've been wanting to bring you on here forever, as you know, and we've I know. we've we've taken our time and eased you into it and we finally wrangled you on here. So I'm stoked. So thanks for finally agreeing to come and have a conversation with me. Can I just say, Brock, thank you for inviting me and thank you for being patient as I kind of traverse the last little while to um, jump on your podcast. But um, I believe in your work. I believe in you. And I think what you're doing, you know, you're create, creating those little ripple effects and planting those seeds which is an important uh it's an important work to be doing so thank you for inviting me to be a part of that and um yeah more than welcome more than welcome if you liked this episode and want to check out more head over to occupiedpodcast.com or search occupied podcast in your favorite podcasting app If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied. Hopefully it wasn't too traumatic. It wasn't traumatic at all. It was very... See, I told you. It, it was just me and you having a conversation. Oh, that sounds familiar. I wonder where I've heard that before. <laughs> see, it's easy. Oh, easy peasy.